Hello, welcome to a live recording of Desert Island Books, a podcast about reading. I'm your host and resident librarian, Natalie Mason from City of Melbourne Libraries. Joining me is a special guest who will share their top five all-time favourite books. Virginia Trioli is a radio host, television presenter, news reporter, features writer and columnist. In 1995, she won a Walkley Award for her business reporting and in 2001 won a second Walkley for her landmark interview with the former Defence Minister, Peter Reith, over the notorious children overboard issue. For eight years, Virginia hosted the Drive program on ABC Melbourne and the Morning program on ABC Sydney. Virginia has also been the host of Late Line and a presenter of Sunday Arts, both on ABC TV. She currently anchors News Breakfast on ABC One and ABC News 24 with co-host Michael Rowland. This interview with Virginia was recorded live in November 2018 at Arts House, just around the corner from the North Melbourne Library. Good evening, everyone. It's really lovely to be here in my neighbourhood, uh, just having to walk here two minutes up the road and be back in the library. I haven't been here in a little while because my boy's now at school and so he borrows from the school library. Um, but I did borrow out a couple of picture books for him and I've discovered I have a $10 fine here. So <laughs> it just kind of made me feel at home. And I wasn't able to wave it for her, so let's see how this goes. Hi. Hi, Natalie. Hello. Um, uh, Virginia, you're here to share with us your all-time favourite books. Picture this. Many years from now when you retire. I can't imagine that, but let's think about (laughs) it. Next week, I tell you. We all head to your desert island, which is a little creepy, but look, we're in a room full of friends, so it's not that creepy. But we're all with you. We're all with you, and you've got a waterproof suitcase, which is brilliant because mould on books is just rubbish. Um, And so we're going to hear about the books that you've um, packed with you and dragged through the sand. So just for all of our friends here, no judging, please. Tonight is not a detailed or academic analysis of the books. We're here to talk about what it is to be a reader and why we love certain books and why we can't shake them. So no judgy. Rather, it is an opportunity to learn about Virginia, her reading habits, probing questions um, and to chat more about books. So welcome to your desert island. Thank Thank you very much. It's awfully comfortable here. So we're going to start with some questions about reading. Um, Where is your favourite place to read? It's funny, I have a new favourite place to read. It's actually my son's bedroom. Um, and I, I was just there this afternoon. I came home and um, there were some papers I wanted to read and a magazine as well. I thought, I'm just going to go up to Addison's room and I'm going to throw open the blinds because it's, it's, it's um, north, north, northwest facing. Mm. And so it just gets beautiful light. And there's a big tree out the front so you get that dappled light as well. And, um, and it's just always nice being in your son's bed and, you know, those beautiful smells of a six-year-old boy. And um, so I just sort of cuddled up in, in that place. So um, if he lets me, that's my favourite place to read now. My follow-up question for you is where do you put him when you're in his bedroom? <laughs> well, often we will read in that bed together. Okay, um, we're big readers in our household and uh, he's becoming a big reader too. So uh, the reading of books, there's usually... Dad's reading to um, Addison and then my reading. I come in later on with the book that we're doing. So he's usually have got two or three books on the go at once. Yeah. Um, and he's displaying a good skill at sort of, you know, shifting between the two. So he'd be in bed with me. Um, otherwise, I'd just boot him off to go and jump on the trampoline or something. Okay. Um, what are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm halfway through Chloe Hooper's The Arsonist. Oh. 
Um, who's reading or has read that yet? Can I see a show of hands for anyone who's engaged with that one? Chloe, um, of course, is one of our greatest writers and, um, and a brilliant writer of non-fiction. Um, and I don't think the word... I mean, I'm, I'm proudly a reporter and a journalist, but I don't think the word um, correctly applies because she's so much more than that. Um, and she's a very good friend of mine as well. Uh, we had we had a lovely sort of literary um, love affair, if you like, where I was um, interviewing her for The Tall Man when I was doing Sunday Arts. And so we went to her place and did a one-on-one interview uh, about that exceptional book and very important book. And it was one of those rare moments where I'm interviewing her, it's rolling on, cameras are rolling, and I'm thinking, I really like her. <laughs> How do you make someone your friend? You know that great Seinfeld line, I don't know if you remember it, where someone wanted to be his friend and he said, you know, I'm, I'm full up with friends, I'm just not hiring anymore. You know, I, I have enough friends and, and I'm at that, I'm not hiring anymore. But I thought, um, but I want to hire you. And um, so we sort of awkwardly said goodbye and I could tell that she, you know, enjoyed the connection too. And then she rang about a year later and said, we should, we should be friends. And I said, yes, we should. And, um, and so we are, which is great. But um, it's fantastic and it's about um, one aspect of the Black Saturday fires, the Churchill fire and an incredibly sad and traumatic tale uh, about that from many different perspectives. And how do you choose what to read next? Well, I have, I, have, I think what we all have which is what I call the pile of shame by my bed. And the pile of shame is now the bottom of my wardrobe at work as well, sort of half-read books and skim-read books and books that I'm desperate to read and, you know, don't have children. You'll never read again. Which, you know, I mean, I'm told that you can maybe at the age of, I don't know, 12 or something, 15. But seriously, it's catch as catch can. Um, so it's what, I guess, um, stays with me most compellingly that I might have seen on a bookshelf or heard about from a friend or, or seen in a, in a newspaper. And um, if I go past a bookstore and see it, I'll think, ah, that's the one, that's the one, and I'll grab that and, you know, add it to the pile of shame where it gathers dust. Do you ever ask a librarian? <laughs> well, I asked you tonight, didn't I? Yes. Yes, I did. And one of these um, recommendations is from you. Correct. So if it's no good, it's your fault. Um, shall we start with your first book? And would you like to do the reveals? Because it's on. Yeah, I'll do the reveals. All right, off you go. Um, and then this you can get into me for what this book didn't have. But um, this is a good shocking start. And it's in Chaparelli Shocking Pink. It is Tina Brown's The Diana Chronicles. <laughs> Don't laugh. Yeah, um, see, no judgy. Mm-mm. No, you'd be as judgy as you like with the most beautiful portrait of Tina Brown on the back taken by Annie Leibovitz. Mm. This is an extraordinary document. Am I a royalist? No. Do I care about Diana? Of course I don't. I remember watching her wedding uh, with my mum, staying up late when I was at school and watching that and thinking it was the most magical thing of all. And I guess like most of us, I've sort of had a passing in and out interest with that whole um, soap opera um, and every now and again interested in what she was wearing. But uh, never one to buy the women's magazines and read, and read about her. Tina Brown is an extraordinary person. She is one of the greatest journalists there's ever been. Um, Oxford educated at 25 years of age. She was um, plucked out of obscurity after submitting some brilliant essays and writing to Punch magazine. Uh, she was asked at the age of 25 to edit Tatler magazine, which by then in England was this dusty old thing falling into um, uh, irrelevance and obscurity. I think it sold about, you know, 20,000 copies. It was a mess. And with her 
uh, wicked wit and her forensic eye and her brilliant ability to recruit, she turned it into an astonishing thing. She was poking fun at the aristocracy at the same time as she was reporting on them. And so she got to know Diana through her time as editor of Tatler but also Vanity Fair. And this is, to me, an incredible portrait of the aristocracy in the late 20th century. It's about Diana, of course it is. But she gets incredible access in this book. They're all named up the front of the book. I'd like to thank Lady Hamilton Smythe and, and Baroness, whoever. And you're thinking, who are these people? And she has got access to every great home in England yeah. and every single family. And they tell her exactly what went on in that utterly dysfunctional royal family over the life of Diana. And it's a brilliant portrait of power and influence and waning power and influence mm. in modern England. There are uh, 60 pages at the back of the book that are just references. So you've got your bibliography, your index. She interviews 250 people to put that book together and couldn't be bothered putting a photo of Princess Diana there. There are no pictures not in a this single biography. One. Not a single Not a single photo. one. There's only one photograph and it's of her and she looks Correct. great. Um, She's not even on the cover. Which I think says something marvellous. And, it, and it's a great uh, way of communicating to the reader, which is don't pick this up. Go buy your woman's day if that's what you want. What I'm going to take you into right. is I'm going to take you into the shabby halls of fading royal power and I'm going to paint a portrait of how powerful men get away with what they want to get away with. The stories in here of, of, rail, of the Royal Railway car parked on sidings yeah. in uh, obscure parts of England and where uh, um, uh, um, Camilla is driven oh. to the car in the middle of the night so that they can have an assignation on some railway siding somewhere out of Diana's nose and uh, from under her eyes is just extraordinary. Camilla's it's, a bit of a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. And, and, and to, mm. when you realise, like all good biography, that you're actually dealing with, you know, the real lived experience of people, you know, of, of a woman, of her children, mm. of her friends, of her mother, of that you know, madly dysfunctional family. Um, it's, it's one of the most riveting books I've ever read. It's my guilty secret. You know, when you just feel like a bowl of cornflakes, you go, I'm just going to have breakfast for dinner, you know, that one. This is what I go back to. I let, wherever it falls open, I start reading it and it's just, just marvellous. Is there another member of the royal family that you think a book like this could be written about? Or is this very specific to Diana and no, her? I think, yeah, this is. She was very unique, obviously. Her well, circumstances it's and specific everything. to time and place because right. she came to uh, she came into pro public prominence just at a time when all of that um, was pivoting around, mm. and at a time where you know she was she was medically inspected to establish she was a virgin. Yeah. They didn't. Did you guys not know that? <laughs> Go read the book. They did not do that to Megan. Megan was most clearly not a virgin. She'd been married before. <laughs> didn't really matter. Clearly didn't matter with Camilla either, who is now going to be the consort of the king, um, should Charles ever get that. I'm um, terrified of Camilla. If you've ever been interested as a young person, and I'm sure you were, you were mm. interested in kings and queens and, you know, and the famous, you know, fam families and the lineages and the crowns and when you were younger, this is just an extension of that but it's real and, yeah. and we got to see it in 24-hour um, real time and, uh, and that's what I found just fascinating about it. The thing that I learned that I don't think I ever knew following Diana and while she was alive was what her family life was like and it was highly dysfunctional. Her mother was troubled 
her parents separated. Her father married Barbara Cartland's daughter. I was kind of shocked at how much of a latchkey kid she was. She was. That, she was not yeah. coddled or protected or she was sent off to boarding school. She nannied when she clearly didn't have to for financial purposes. She wasn't doing it for pocket money. Um, and yet she ended up in this really sort of mad circus. It, it, it's a good observation of yours about her family. That's one of the most interesting things mm. about the book. If you don't know, the Spencer family, well, their title is older, way older. Yeah. ...than the, um, the Windsors. The Spencers go back to the, the 1300s, yep. I think. Yep. Um, and it was assumed that when the Queen gave Charles the imprimatur to marry Diana... ...that they'd be getting just the perfectly well-brung-up aristocratic girl. Everything you would expect. That she would know how to sit at mm. tables. She would know how to ride to hounds. She would know all of that stuff. What you do in country, what you do in town. She knew none of it. Mm -mm. Because as you say, she was a latchkey kid. She was appallingly neglected. Yep. She was appallingly badly educated. You know, she barely oh, yeah. got her... She her, failed her, her high school whatnots. Her, they um, gave it to her anyway because she her, was rich, uh, Didn't get her O-levels but got o a couple of her A-levels. Yeah, she yeah. did not graduate with honours. And, um, and they were just shocked to find this sort of quite um, neurotic, anxious girl who couldn't hold her own at these endlessly tedious dinners mm. where she was, you know, sat next to Lord this and Bishop that... Um, Camilla would have been much better place to do that. She knew how to play the game. And uh, instead you get this, this girl who's just craving love and craving mm -hmm. attention that she never got from her parents. And she thinks she's going to get it from a man who demonstrably doesn't love her. Did you know that uh, Charles dated Diana's sister? Ah, oh, all right. Everyone knew that. That was not a secret. Good, that was a test, audience participation. I think it's, a, it's also just a really interesting indication of what you can achieve as a writer <clears throat> once you've established yourself and your paths in life as a journalist. So, using the Chloe Hooper example, I mean, she's, she's established, you know, she's damn good at her craft, she's a good um, interviewer, she's a great writer. But when you establish yourself as someone who's a truth teller, and who will tell the difficult story, people will come to you. Because of all her time as the editor of Tatler, Vanity Fair, the New Yorker magazine, her time as editor of the New Yorker is probably its, its absolute peak. It was a, a brilliant magazine. She made some amazing hires. Adam Gopnik was her hire. Yeah. Um, uh, also, the, the current editor um, was her hire as well. Uh, uh, and she's established herself as someone who has contacts, and who uh, can get up, get people to pick up the phone when she rings. So then you can go and do a book like this that you know is just impeccably researched. So it was released in 2007 to commemorate, commemorate? the 10-year anniversary of Diana's death. Yeah. The blurb on the back is... Shall I read it to you? Would sure. You like, or would you like to read it? Yeah, I read it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you need spec specs? God, yes. All right. I'll, I'll start it slowly when you catch up with me. I've got specs on, but I can... Okay. Uh, as we reach what would have been Princess Diana's 50th birthday, so this is in 2007, the woman herself remains a mystery. Was she the people's princess who electrified the world with her beauty and humanitarian missions, or was she a manipulative, media-savvy neurotic who nearly brought down the monarchy? Tina Brown knew Diana personally, knows her worlds, understands its players and has far-reaching insight into the royals. In the Diana Chronicles, you meet a formidable female cast and get to know the society they inhabit as you never have before. 
It's a, yeah, it's a, look, it's a great read. Um, and it, I've, my book, I went looking for my books to bring up tonight and I found about two of them because I lend out everything. I just say, take it, take it, take it. I'm a big believer in once you've read a book, you don't need to hang on to it, just move it on. Um, That's how the library works. <laughs> and I don't charge anyone a fine. Makes me the better person, I think. Probably. But I found that the Diner Chronicles was not there because I've loaned my copy out about five times. The last time it hasn't come back. I know where it is, but and I'll get it back. And uh, how do you get your books back? I just ring them and say, "Bring it back." Well, that's what, maybe what we should <laughs> no, do. No, we make an excuse. We'll meet for coffee or come over and have dinner and that's bring the book with I you. That's what I should do. Ring some patrons, meet for coffee, get the DVDs back. All right. I'll put that on the next team meeting agenda. Um, is this a, a book that you gift or recommend regularly to people? I actually haven't given that as a gift. And, um, and when I think about it, I really should. Because mm. um, that, that, um, that rollicking read that you want over summer. Mm, that's it. That's it. That's your summer book. Don't, right. don't think about it. I think, we should, I think we should put this one. I think we should go to that one next. All right. Am I allowed to edit you? Not chaotic at all on the yeah, fly. <laughs> I can handle it. I can handle it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw her a bit. I work in a public library. And let's save that for last. Oh, yes, that is last. Yeah, that okay, one great. is last. Yeah. All right. Would you kindly reveal the mm. title and author of book two? Well, look, unfortunately, well, fortunately, we're going with another biography, but we do have fiction to get to, so don't despair. Um, but this is, this is possibly the greatest biography that I've ever read mm. and, um, and universally acclaimed as one of the greatest ever written. It's Richard Ellman's biography of Oscar Wilde. Uh, and if you only know Oscar Wilde as some um, flamboyant flaneur who uh, was the author of some rather witty plays, uh, which people keep misquoting, um, and, uh, and uh, uh, the author of some bon mots that have um, entered into public use, then you don't know Oscar Wilde. Richard Ellman uh, is... One of the, the greatest literary critics that America's probably ever produced. He was educated at Yale University. Uh, he came from a family where his brothers went on into um, academia as well. And he had a particular interest in the Irish writers. His, um, uh, author of, his biography of T.S. Eliot is considered one of the, probably the greatest literary biography ever written. And this one comes in as a close second. Oscar Wilde was a fascinating man. Oscar Wilde was an absolutely brilliant man and a fatally flawed one. And as I watch uh, people like Geoffrey Rush uh, take on um, defamation actions and indeed anyone when they take on a defamation action, my mind immediately turns to Oscar Wilde and the consequence, uh, the, um, the, the meaning and the ramifications of unintended consequences and what can happen when so much of your life becomes public that you didn't intend to make public just in that simple act of defending your name. And we can get into the story here. No spoilers here because Oscar Wilde is dead and we probably all know his life. But it is impeccably researched, as you would expect. But more than that, it's a biography that lives and breathes the man. It has such a humanity to it. And, and such a, uh, he has such a beautiful a line of writing that you just rocket your way through it as you would the best written novel. Mm. And, um, and it's a, a painful and heartbreaking portrait as well. Yeah, it's really narrative-driven. It's almost like you're reading a work of fiction about an invented person, um, except for the beautiful 
illustrations, but also the excerpts that are kind of sprinkled throughout the book. So they're parts of letters that he wrote to his mother when he was 13 and there are excerpts from his plays and there are newspaper articles written about uh, reviews about his work, um, letters that he wrote to and from lovers. It's, uh, it's totally immersive and it is... It is a real portrait of a man. It's divided into five sections, and just the subject, just the, the sort of titles are great. Titles, yeah, right? read them out. They're great. Beginnings, advances, exaltations, disgrace, exile. He just there's, and, the, and, the, and there's a lot. Five words. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, that he had a um, an ill-advised and tempestuous and ultimately tragic um, relationship with uh, Lord Alfred Douglas, mm. who was a feckless fop and who, and who did not deserve the adoration of this extraordinary man and extraordinary mind. Mm. Uh, and he did many things to show that he didn't deserve it. But worse than that, he had a father, uh, the Marcus of Queensbury, mm -hmm. hence the street out there. Uh, so we're going to boycott that street. No one <laughs> is walking down Queensbury anymore. He was the creator of the rules of boxing, um, and which gives you an idea of the sort of pugnacious nature of this man. And uh, he absolutely hated that his son, his you know, son and heir, was carrying on in this clearly homosexual and disgraceful way uh, with his uh, beloved son. And uh, he entrapped uh, Oscar Wilde with uh, the letters that were written. Yep. And... Uh, and from what he uh, said and published, uh, he was Oscar sued him for libel. Yeah. That was the label libel case that revealed the love that dare not speak its name. And it was from that where he was sued and he was charged for the crime of being homosexual. Look, it's, it's, it's amazingly told in this book and it's told without judgment and mm. uh, it's, it, it, the, Elman exhibits that great skill of a biographer to simply meet the person and the story where it's at, the time and the place that it's at yeah. and, and, not, and not to overlay it with um, any other judgement. The, the story and the actions reveal themselves. I had a, a really great editor once upon a time when I was a, a young journalist and I'd written um, – it was a, a story I'd written actually about when Rudolf Nureyev died. And Rudolf Nureyev did have a big connection here to Melbourne and the, um, the early Russian school of ballet that established here and, and the, the dancing and, and dances that he did here. And I wrote um, – I've always had a, um, a very big interest in ballet – and I wrote a colour piece for it. And I can't remember what I'd done in the story. But my editor came over, um, Peter Allingson, and he said to me, you've forgotten the, the crucial rule. Show, don't tell. You simply show, reveal, through active writing, through uh, a quote from someone, from their narrative about what they were doing. Show it, don't tell me. And, and Richard... Elman does this in his book. So he simply reveals step by step that awful trial. And, of course, the result that Oscar Wilde was sent to um, Reading Jail where, again, unintended consequences, he wrote what I think is an immortal um, poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail. Mm. I think part of that showing is the historical research that's in that book. The fact that there are newspaper articles and letters and so many documents that um, Elman is able to let those first mm. accounts... Yeah, the primary sources primary speak for sources, themselves, thank yeah. You. It's, um, it's evident that it took two decades of research to yeah. put that document together. Um, 
and it contrasts really well with another book that we didn't talk, haven't talked about yet. So I'll just like hold that horse and come back to it. But my question to you is, when did you first read this? I think I, I think I did. I read this in the eighties. I think in the late eighties or when was it published? It was published in nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah. Well, I think I think I, I read it when it first came out. Yeah. And uh, you're a fan of Oscar Wilde already, and is um, that what drew you to it? Look, I liked Oscar Wilde, and um, you know, like many of us. I don't know if you did this in your sort of, you know, student days, your high school days and your early university days where you found quotes or aphorisms that you really loved and you cut them out and you stuck them on a, you know, a board or a That's something. normal. Everybody so, does okay. that. Well, I had my cork board and I had lots of um, wildisms um, there on, on, the, uh, on the back of my door. Um, so I, I liked him. I wouldn't have said that I was an absolute you know, aficionado or a, or a huge fan. But I remember reading a review saying that this was just one of the best biographies ever written of any literary figure. And, and I loved in reading the review, and I would have read it probably in the age, I guess, back then. I loved in reading that. I discovered that this man had was such a gentle and loving man uh, that he had, you know, a beautiful sense of humour but also an extraordinary fragility mm. that he was clearly easily open to use and abuse, uh, particularly by his um, idiot lover. And, uh, and there was something about that humanity that really connected with me. And so I remember I went and got the book. I got it in paperback. It's a green paperback. It's sitting on my shelf at home. It, again, has been loaned out many times. And I think it comes back um, uh, not completely read almost every time, which means that friend after friend has deeply disappointed me. That they I, have not finished that book. I didn't finish it and sadly I guess we're never going to be friends. I I'm, do have I'm an opening. I'm destined to be alone. I do have an opening for a new friend but anyway, maybe someone else I'm not hiring. <laughs> is that fine, isn't it? I know, I know you've talked a little bit about this but can you pinpoint the one thing about this book that stayed with you that made it front of mind when you put your list together for me tonight? Uh, look, I... I, I I don't know if I can because – but when you asked me, when I got the email, I always knew this book would be on the list mm. because I think it's one, of the, it's one of the greatest books I've ever read. Um, it also have – does it uh, – does this one have that? Yes, it does. Um, it's got – and I don't think I've seen this in another biography, but correct me if you've seen it. Every single page has the year. So wherever you are in the story, you look up and you go, ah, oh, I'm 1887 to 1889 and it just progresses through. It's a little thing. I love that. Oh, it's such a nerd thing that. and I love it too. No, but it is. And also it just, just you know, it gives it that sense of Elman just has his hand, his oh. controlling hand over everything. He knows what he he's knows, doing. He knows where he is. He knows where you are. He's taking care of you. Mm. Um, I think I think it actually – I do remember very, very clearly the um, the sequence on the trial and I think there was something about the, the, the writing of that, the, the, the awful, you know, um, gut-churning inevitability of uh, where you know that's going, even while you see this, this um, you know, uh, flippant, charming, defiant Oscar Wilde in the stand. You can just imagine, can't you? And he thinks he's doing brilliantly, you know, um, calling them out and dropping lines and, and you just know that the judge is sitting there just you know, hating him. He's, he's, he's demonstrating more and more with every utterance just how flamboyantly homosexual he is. Mm. You know, he's, he's, he's proving the, his guilt with every word. And there was something about that, the, the way that was written, almost in the way that, um, you know, the, the great play, The Crucible, you know, was written, that, yeah. that is so compelling and that, and that stayed with me. 
Um, shall we go now to the invisible book that I don't have? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just one moment, please, while I can. I have it on my bookshelves oh. at home. I could have brought it, but oh, anyway. Right. You, um, would you like to reveal it while I catch up with my paperwork here? Yes. <laughs> it's um, written by uh, the Irish writer Callum Toybean, and it's called The Master. Um, and I hope that you are familiar with him as a writer. He was He's born in 1953. Oh, no, sorry, did you want no, me to pick up? Um, he actually was born in 55. It's a bit dark up here. Um, he's still alive, so you can, you can get on that, still writing. Um, he writes about the preservation of personal identity, focusing especially on homosexual identities, but also on identity when confronted by loss. And this book has a great deal of life in it and a great deal of loss. And he writes about, in this book, he chronicles four lives, or four years in the life, fictionally, a little bit, um, of Henry James. Henry, Henry James, of course, you know, um, the great uh, turn-of-the-century American writer who really sort of set the American um, gilded age up with his particular books of um, social mores, expectations, manners, but also psychological drama and conflict. Uh, an absolutely beautiful writer and one of my favourites. Something really weird happened in the atmosphere or in the water in the year that The Master came out. Two incredibly great books were written about Henry James. You know the other one. And, uh, I don't. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll I tell you in case you don't. I'm getting nods around the room, which is so nice to see. Um, so he wrote a book about the master, and as Natalie said, it's a fictionalised account of what might have been going through his, through his mind, what was going on in his life as he was struggling to work. Alan Hollinghurst also published the book The Line of Beauty. They're both two of the great gay novels in the canon of gay literature. And Alan, I mean, I wrestled with whether, whether I'd pick um, The Master or The Line of Beauty because The Line of Beauty, to digress for a moment, The Line of Beauty um, lives uh, where I live. It chronicles my era. It's set in the 80s and set into the 90s and it chronicles the advent and arrival of HIV AIDS and uh, a young man who's struggling it's, it's, it's very much a book of social manners. A young man from, from nowhere, and there's a theme developing here, uh, who manages to sort of to, to make his way into the, the upper echelons of society where he does not fit and where he tries very hard to fit. It's a magnificent book and, and just a, a beautiful read. But at the same year, um, Callum Tobin published The Master. And uh, I found this an extraordinary synergy. And it... Well, if you've not read Colm Toybean, I don't think I even want to sort of misrepresent him by, by speaking about his writing. He's one of the, the greatest writers that I've ever had the pleasure of reading. He is so spare with the way that he writes. Um, you'd struggle to find an adjective. It's all direct, propulsive writing where the narrative drives it all. Even when you are in the mind of the characters and you often spend a lot of time in the mind of the characters and in most of his books there is that unseen, unknowing narrator whereas the, the preference seems to be always to be like a, a lot of first person these days mm. um, and it sits wonderfully comfortably because there's, uh, there's something about the control that he has with his writing where you completely trust what he's bringing to you from those characters. Um, it's, it's an immensely beautiful book. Did you find it so? I did, and I listened to the audio book 
It goes for 15 hours and I listened to it while I was crocheting and I was just doing the same pattern over and over again so it didn't require too much of my brain activity. So I really got quite lost and I was making an object that was a particular size and before I knew it I'd made a blanket. I just had lost my, I just stopped counting stitches, stopped using my stitch count, I just kept going and going and going and I felt myself there and I found it funny in parts. I don't know if I was supposed to. Particularly in the middle section where he's got a couple of servants living with him who absolutely fleece him for all he's worth because he can't possibly put his foot down. Um, Which reminds you of Virginia Woolf. Yeah, yes, it does. And even, even that opening kind of – it's kind of in thirds really, isn't it? Um, but the thing that stayed with me most were the kind of relationships that he had – with the women in his life, with his cousin and with his friend and how he was willing to give only part of himself to those sorts of friendships and relationships and yet the grieving that took place when he lost both of those people um, without a great deal of self-reflection on what he could have done differently. Mm. So that, great, that great sense of loss but then that lived experience of loss is what pro sort of propelled him to write. And he wrote so, Henry James, so deftly about women. Yeah. And, I mean, this is a, this is a work of fiction, yeah. but it's true. It, no, that's absolutely right. And that's why when you read a Henry James novel, um, there invariably um, the, the character is a woman. Um, and I think this is a very interesting parallel then and connection as to why I'm sure um, Toy Bean was attracted to this, uh, to him as a writer and to telling this story uh, for himself as well. A great deal of Tobin's writing um, deals with women in the form of um, mothers. Uh, and he has a number of books that deal with that, you know, that mother-son relationship mm -hmm. as well. Uh, there's an there's a approximate relationship that's both complicated, possibly smothering, but deeply fundamental. And he works through and around that and, and the theme of that in a number of his books. So with Henry James, I think you can only really have uh, a writer who can understand his female characters and make them truly credible, particularly when they are mostly psychological portraits of them, when you've got a writer who has some um, mental and soul connection to the mother, I think. My theory. Um, but I reckon with a lot of those writers, it's, it's borne out. Even if that might be an overly complicated one, even if it's not a terribly functional one, um, that, that life force somehow has to be there as an uncut umbilical cord in order for the understanding of the female, the feminine, to come through, I think, credibly in their writing. And they both have that. So I, I was always mindful of that as I was reading... Uh, this book, The Master, uh, and aware of the fact that Tobin has this complicated, unresolved, but incredibly powerful relationship with his mother and with all the mothers that he writes about. And Oscar Wilde appears same. in The Master. Absolutely the same. This, these are the, uh, isn't it funny how it happens? Current story. Yeah, well, and, and you'll, you'll hear the threads are now starting to join up. Let me tell you, it was totally um, unconscious, which is always the 
best kind of narrative connection, mm. I think. But when Natalie um, asked me to nominate the books when I was emailed, and I did what I usually did, I you know ignore emails because I get too many of them until someone's brave enough to send me four and to answer my email and then I will respond. And she said, look, don't think about it. Don't overthink this. Just give me five titles. And I did. I just went – I was sitting at work. I think I was on air. And I just went, Great. fine, whatever. These five. Send. Thank you. <laughs> and now as we're talking – Oh, yeah. um, all the themes will um, come together as a skein, which is kind of beautiful. Yeah. Oh, a crochet term. Thank you, skein. Beautiful. Love it. Um, do you want to talk a bit about Oscar Wilde? I mean, Henry James struggled with his sexuality. He wasn't open about it. He was... Um, Closeted. Troubled sexual identity is what I've written. But um, he... You know, the book starts... The master starts with Henry James escaping the opening night of his play in London... As desperate as he is to, to be a playwright and no longer write novels, he can't bear to watch his work come to life. So he goes down the road to a playhouse and sees this dinky little play called The Importance of Being Earnest or something. And so he sits in the crowd and just can't believe how uproariously everyone is enjoying this play. And then I think he does the shaking his fist at clouds and is like, Oscar Wilde. And, uh, you know, they end up being kind of nemeses in a strange way. In fact, there's a great passage in the Richard Elman about when Oscar Wilde meets Henry James and they speak very disparagingly of each other after they've met, very kind to each other's faces. Oscar Wilde speaks disparagingly of everyone. But it's, Henry James it's just, did it's it It's just too. an excuse to get up a line. That's kind of one of the things I like about him. You know, uh, no, I, no one is spared. I, I just liked how they came together. But, but Henry James was horrified in The Master, so it's a fictionalised account, but still he was horrified by the trial and the, the subsequent outcome um, and incarceration of Oscar Wilde, he found it um, quite scary. And I think that probably speaks to his closetedness about his own sexuality. Yeah. I mean, it was a illegal thing. Like, it would have been very scary to confront. And yet he sleeps in beds with men and has this very strange relationship with the Scandinavian sculptor. How funny is that thread? That whole part of the book is hilarious. Um, and the, there's a passage in the book that has stayed with me, and I wonder if there's a part of the book that's visually stayed with you. When um, Henry James gets on the gondola in Venice and disposes of his friend's clothes after she's passed away. It's this very sad, you can just see the mist on the water, and yet he pops the dresses in the water what's going to happen when you pop a frock in the water? It's going to fill up with air, isn't it? And just float around like a ghost. Scare the pants off you. That's, a beautiful, that's nicely remembered. That's a, a beautiful sequence, that. Yeah. And um, again, I don't know about you when you read, but I'm, I'm forever it, – it's, it's not um, deliberate, but um, it's, like, it's like ghosts. You know, mm. ghosts of other books and other threads and other yes. images keep coming to you. So I – I would always think of the talented Mr. Ripley um, in that as well, you know, again, which has a great Venetian mm. sequence too and and um, yes. un unspoken desire and love that dare not speak its name and and uh, and, the, and the murder of love. These which are is, all in all of these books. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in all of these books. All yeah. of them. My God, what have I done? No, it's great. Continue doing whatever it is that you do. It is working. Um which author did you read first, Henry James or Colm Toybin? Oh, Henry James. Um, I studied Henry James at school and I remember very, very clearly reading Washington Square. And Washington Square is 
one of the greatest novels and I will always remember the final, the final line of Washington Square is quoted as one of the great closing lines of, um, of a novel. Let me see if I can get it vaguely right where um, her uh, brutal father has chased away um, the suitor and the suitor was another phony and a fake anyway. Um, so she's sort of been doubly hurt. She's lost the man that she thought she was going to um, love and marry. And then it turns out that he was actually um, just trying to fleece her anyway. And she takes up her needlework, sitting there having had this dreadful conversation with her father. She's sitting by the fire and she picks up her needlework for life, as it were. For life, comma, as it were. And... Um, this just falls with a thud at the end of the book and it's the sound of her heart just cleaved and you see her by the fire in um, a beautiful turn-of-the-century mansion in Washington Square in New York, which was the centre of the universe then, sitting there and turning into an old lady uh, where no one will ever come courting, no one will come for her again and her father certainly wouldn't let them in the door anyway. And um, in that Henry Jamesian way, that fine way that he has of understanding pain while keeping it absolutely crisp and never, ever, ever a shade of purple, maybe in a couple of the later more florid ones, but at that, at that period, um, it works just beautifully. At least she has her needlework, which will not let oh, her right. down. Shall we move on to book four? Yes. This one, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Would you like to introduce it? Well, this is one that I've... Um, oh, my God, how many times have I read this? And um, it's one of those early formative experiences where I encountered her in high school. And um, our English teacher set this to the shock of um, the English literature teacher who thought that it was terribly lowbrow. Um, and who knows, maybe it is. But it's um, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Hands up who hasn't read it yet. Just a couple. Oh, right. you've got such a treat. So we all know the opening lines, don't we? But we're going to read them again. Last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive and for a while I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. There was a padlock and a chain upon the gate. I called in my dream to the lodgekeeper and had no answer. And peering closer through the rusted spokes of the gate, I saw that the lodge was uninhabited. No smoke came from the chimney, and the little lattice windows gaped forlorn. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden with supernatural powers, and I passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The drive wound away in front of me, twisting and turning, as it has always done. But as I advanced, I was aware that a change had come upon it. It was narrow and unkempt. Not the drive that we had known. At first I was puzzled. I did not understand. And it was only when I bent my head to avoid the low swinging branch of a tree that I realised what had happened. Nature had come into her own. And little by little, in her stealthy, insidious way, had encroached upon the drive with long, tenacious fingers. The woods, always a menace, even in the past, had triumphed in the end. They crowded, dark and uncontrolled, to the borders of the drive. The beaches with white naked limbs leant close to one another. Their branches intermingled in a strange embrace, making a vault above my head like the archway of a church. 
And there were other trees as well, trees I did not recognise, squat oaks, tortured elms that straggled cheek by jowl with the beeches and had thrust themselves out of the quiet earth along with monster shrubs and plants, none of which I remembered. So I listened to the audiobook and it wasn't that good. <laughs> she is... Can you read the rest of it? <laughs> oh, she's an amazing character, Daphne du Maurier. Let's get to her in a moment. But Rebecca, yes. if you don't know the story, Rebecca is the tale of a woman we never meet. We only meet and we're told the story through the first person of a female narrator whose name we never know. You only realise that, I think. I don't know, when do you realise that you actually don't have her name? When Maxim uses her name and she says, oh, that's weird that you remembered it. It's a strange name. And he said, oh, yeah, it's a strange name. And, uh, and well, then you sit some, there going, hang on, we're 50 pages in. How do I not know what her name is? How some, does he know? Some readers still never pick that up. So, so brilliantly original and compelling is that first-person voice that it just doesn't matter. And you get these lovely, it's definitely tomorrow teasing you the whole way through, these lovely references of your, your lovely strange name. Oh, I, yep. yeah. you have so, such a lovely strange name. It's like, and an unusual spelling. Name? What letter did you think her name began with? doesn't matter. I had it in my mind. I, I, I used to wrestle with this and I have to come to the conclusion her name starts with M. I don't know why, but M is just sort of the right sound and tone for this woman who is the most put upon, <laughs> uh, disempowered, mousy brown thing you could possibly mm. meet. Mousy, there's the M. Possibly that's the M. Mm. She's working as a lady's maid to one of the most brilliantly drawn and grotesque characters in all of modern fiction. Yep. Um, and if you've seen the, uh, the Hitchcock film, Hitchcock of Rebecca, yep. Hitchcock draws mm. her absolutely accurately. There's a beautiful moment in it where she's, um, she's, she is the epitome of vulgar. She's a social climber. She's American and loud and she's there in Cannes because everyone goes to Cannes in summer, don't they? Yeah. And she's hoping to yeah. be invited to soirees and lunches by all the, the names and the aristocrats. You see these threads coming together now. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's not – she's shunned, of course, because English society in the 1930s and 40s we are wouldn't 30s. have a bar yeah. of her. Yeah. Um, there's a great moment where she's a smoker and where her breakfast is there uneaten and she, she squashes her, um, her red stain from her lipstick cigarette butt out in her egg yolk on her breakfast. It's a gorgeous image. And every single writer would look to that and go, that's, that's how you, pour, you portray vulgarity. Perfect. Done. Show, Nothing more needed. don't tell. Show, show don't tell. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. And um, she meets this strange, um, unavailable, standoffish, brusque man... And they, for reasons that are never really clear, they sort of seem to have this whirlwind romance, which is sort of news to her. She doesn't really know she's being romanced. And so he brooksley says one day, one day, well, you know, you better, you're going to go with her or you're going to come with me? Sorry? Mm. Well, I guess we better get married then. And she's whisked off to this extraordinary place down on the Cornish coast called Mandalay, where she soon realises that she's living with a ghost. And the ghost is the dead previous wife, the first wife, who is called Rebecca. And Rebecca has breeding, brains, beauty. Rebecca is everything that she will never be. And she's small and shrunk in this enormous house that she'll never be the equal of, she'll never be the mistress of. No one there believes she will. She walks in the door with her tweed skirt and her crappy shoes and the staff 
look at her in that way and are tittering behind their hands and can't take her seriously. But the story that unfolds is a psychological drama around what's real, what's fantasy, who is the real Rebecca and who is the real Maxim. And it's, it's a great story, but we'll get to the but. You have some questions. Oh, Go on. Do I? Um, so it's, it's described as a gothic novel. It's described as a romance no- novel. And um, my favourite things in gothic novels are the kind of the haunted castles and the wind-swept moors and the obsessed men who have terrible secrets and then there's a raging fire. Not in all of them. In this one. In Janie. Well, this is well, uh, well, let me let me jump in there. Um, please, she, it's your show. It was um, <laughs> it was uh, a critical success, except for the fact that a number of authors said it's just a rewriting of Jane Eyre. I mean, this woman's just taken Jane Eyre and just done a rewriting of it. Which, it's real different. Well, we, well, which Daphne du Maurier, in a sense, never really shied away from. But as we know in journalism, there are no new stories. Hmm. There are only good ones and bad ones. Yeah. And I don't drop that as a funny line. That's true. Uh, and the great stories keep getting retold. They're just the same. Love gone wrong, love gone right, love thwarted, uh, desire thwarted, ambition thwarted, uh, ambition achieved. They're all the same stories. It's the execution that matters. Mm-hmm. So she's executed it in a different way. But yes, in a sense, it is um, the kind of the mad woman in the attic Jane Eyre story. But not because there is... There is no mad woman in the attic. There's oh, a yes? dead first wife. Really? There's not a mad woman in the attic? Oh, you mean Mrs. Danvers? Mrs. Danvers. Oh, Mrs. Danvers. Even if you've not read Rebecca, you may know of the name Mrs. Danvers. And again, this mm. is the thing that every author wants to create, isn't it? They want to create the sui generis character. The character that when you say their name, Uriah Heap, David Copperfield... The next one we'll get to. <laughs> uh, you know exactly who they are. Uh, they've defined a world around themselves and, uh, and you're, you're back in that story. She absolutely does that with Mrs Danvers. Mrs. The Mrs Danvers character, if she wasn't written before and maybe she was, she can't be written the same way again. She is Rebecca's old nanny and she's still there in the house. She came with Rebecca uh, to the house when Rebecca married Maxim de Winter who's the, you know, the, the scion and the heir. Um, and she's always been in Rebecca's corner. And she's still in Rebecca's corner, even though Rebecca is dead. So how do you think she's going to take to the fact that a new Mrs De Winter has walked in the door? And she's mousy and very easily pushed over. And so she's undermined and properly psychologically tortured. Oh, there's so many good scenes in this book. I, I mean, of course, it lent itself to cinema and Hitchcock was right to grab it. And actually did a really good job with it, he I did. think. did, yeah. So Hitchcock um, – so de Maurier, just for some context, also wrote The Birds, which is a short story which Hitchcock turned into a film, and Jamaica Inn, which Hitchcock also turned to a film, and My Cousin Rachel, which someone else turned into a film. So de Maurier wrote 15 novels, um, six short story collections, many works of non-fiction – what a brilliant woman. She and was amazing. Yeah, and her books are her books are like classics with a capital C. Classic literature is thought of as being stuffy and you've got to blow the dust off it and it's written in ye oldie times. However, this is airport fiction. This is Jane Harper 
of the 1930s. This is page-turning, edge-of-your-seat, bite-your-fingernails-off kind of well, psychological thriller. Well, that, that's true. I, I would disagree with you a bit about oh, I, about the, sort of the, 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 the high-fiction classic classic. That's just something that um, Demario struggled with all her life. She never had a problem with the fact that she was writing popular fiction and she wanted to write and publish and she did, uh, as you say, publish books that sold very well. She had a little bit of that internal struggle with, you know, can't I possibly be, you know, um, at the same level as a as a Tolstoy or, or a Chekhov? But um, it's it's not classic in that in that sense. It is very very um, uh, declaratively popular fiction, and so it's it's written in that way. So there is a snobbery uh, about Daphne du Maurier's work. She was an, an amazing woman. She was a the daughter of um, uh, the great theatre uh, actor Gerald du Maurier. Um, she. Uh, had a great love of the Cornish coast and uh, had her first experience down there as a young girl when the family moved there. She was um, into boats and boating. She was very independently minded. Uh, she didn't really want to take up with men at all. In fact, she described herself as having what she called... My God, this... <laughs> yeah, it's coming together. Venetian, right. Venetian tendencies is what she called um, her lesbian self. And she clearly um, was, if not lesbian, then she was bisexual. And uh, had, um, a t if not an actual torrid affair, then at least one via letter with the wife of her publisher. Um, they met each other and fell for each other immediately. But I think they kept it mostly to the letters as women of that day who were of a certain social class uh, did. But they're, they're, they're painful to read. Um, a great intellect a witty and clever and mercurial woman, impossible to pin down, and someone who really struggled with being a mother. She found that a very difficult, intrusive thing when all she wanted to do was write. So I think her children had a hard time of it. One of the things in the books, and it took, it, it, it sort of matches what you were saying, is that... Oh, is it a spoiler? Yeah, it, it is a spoiler to what you're going to say, I think, and I think you probably should... This is a book that's been published for a long time. There's been it's a movie out. never been out of print Can since we just, 1938. Are we, are we allowed to say it's been out long enough now that even if we do spoil the plot for you, you know, stiff cheddar? Is that... Okay. All right. Re Rebecca lived a very outrageous life. Rather like Daphne du Maurier. Um, she had many lovers of both genders and... Although Mrs Danvers is just blindly supportive of anything she did, um, she didn't have a comfortable time living with Maxim. And the best bit of the book is trying to work out what happened to her. Um, we know what happened to her happened to her because, you know, I mean, how well, that's she... That's told she, to us very early, yeah, how, that she yeah, died, she's she died. not alive. And then we find out sort of the, the truth of, of how she died. But what actually was happening to her that sort of led up to the death is still actually left as a little bit of a mystery, a little mm. bit of an enigma. And it's, it's left for you, the reader, to sort of complete in your mind as you take the book and I think as you bring your own experience to the book. But the but that I wanted to get to earlier on, and this will go for the next book we discuss as well, is that it's very, very interesting to um, reflect on books uh, at the, uh, looking at the time and place in which they were published and how they read now. So how I read Rebecca then and how I read Rebecca now is very different. 
because this is very clearly a book of family violence. But when I first read the book, I didn't read it that way. Mm. Rebecca is presented as this monstrously difficult creature who you cannot tame and, and who will not do what's expected and who drives people crazy and, and who can be um, unexpectedly vicious and lash out but brilliant but beautiful but then charm you to death and mm -hmm. make you feel like you're the only person she cares about. And um, how do you deal with such women? You kill them. And uh, now I look at this book and think, well, my God, you know, there's worlds and worlds in this book and it actually has something very, very different to tell us in 2018, which actually, to me, makes it an even better book. Yeah, it's timeless in that way. Absolutely timeless. Shall we? You do the big reveal. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin my soul, lolita, the tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth, lolita. She was low, plain low in the morning, standing four feet ten in one sock. She was Lola in slacks. She was Dolly at school. She was Dolores on the dotted line. But in my arms, she was always lolita. Did she have a precursor? She did, indeed she did. In point of fact, there might have been no Lolita at all had I not loved one summer a certain initial girl child in a Princeton by the sea. Oh, when? About as many years before Lolita was born as my age was that summer. You can always count on a murderer for a fancy prose style. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, exhibit number one is what the seraphs the misinformed, simple, noble-winged seraphs envied. Look at this tangle of thorns. Vladimir Nabokov wrote, I think, the greatest work of literature of the modern age. It is a book you could not write now. It's a book I don't think would get published now. It's a book that details the love. It is love and desire and manipulation and mistreatment of a preteen girl called Dolores by a very strange man called Humbert Humbert. When it was, he calls himself Humbert Humbert in order to hide his identity and he picks this name. It's in the first person, as you can hear. And he is one of the most tricky, dangerous narrators you'll ever read. You, you doubt whether you can trust a word he says. And then in certain passages, you wouldn't doubt him for a moment. You pity him, you hate him, you loathe him. You fear him, you worry deeply for Dolores. And then in the end, you actually barrack and cheer for him and your heart breaks with his. All about the sexual abuse of a girl. Now, how do you encounter and deal with and incorporate that? in 2018. If Rebecca was our challenge in relation to family violence, how on earth do we make sense of this being considered one of the greatest novels of the 20th century? Discuss. I'm really glad you raised that point because uh, you discuss it, you chose it. Um, so, so there's just a couple of things I want to say just for context. Um, the first one is our audience participation. Who has finished reading Lolita? 
Who has started it and not been able to finish it? Yeah, that's about half-half. Who has decided they don't like it and refuses to read it without even thinking about it just because it's about a 40-year-old man and a 12-year-old girl? Who would on purpose pick that book up? On purpose not, right? Yes, good. Good answer and fair enough too. Now, our, our, our discussion is not to change anybody's mind, but we're going to try. Um, so, Nabokov, let's just start with him. Born in Russia, educated in England where he studied French. Then he lived in Germany for 15 years and then moved to America in 1940. He was born in 1899. Um, he learned or he spoke Russian and English from a baby. He was bilingual from birth. And French. And French. He learned French when he was five, apparently. He told me. I read a great book of his essays. His first nine novels were written in Russian until he realised that he would have a far larger audience if he wrote in English. And this is one of his first novels written in English, which is not his first language, but a language he was very familiar with. He was also super into butterflies. And he composed chess problems. That's Nabokov. Interesting dude, right? Fascinating man. One of the Traveled most, the world. One of the most brilliant minds um, of all time. An extraordinary polymath. Yep. Uh, a great linguist. And to consider, as Natalie said, that uh, this is one of the early books in English, the English in this is more beautiful than any native speaker you'll probably ever read. It's extraordinary. He was a lepidopterist. Uh, he has a butterfly named for him, uh, a particular species that he discovered. He and his wife Vera would go on butterfly hunting trips in um, on the east coast of America for most of their summers and take a camper van across uh, the states as well. Um, he was a, he, with his family, um, a white Russian emigre, as they were known then, fleeing the Bolsheviks. And he was... Uh, an academic as well, mm. teaching in um, uh, American East Coast universities. I think that's one of the most beautifully written books I have ever read and it made me as uncomfortable as all get out to read. There, sure. there are some passages in that book that are really difficult. But that takes us to the issue that we were discussing before about time and place. And um, in fact, all the books we looked at have dealt with that. The fact that you're considering Oscar Wilde's trial for obscenity back then and looking at it, you know, aghast thinking, you're kidding me, he was actually jailed for that crime. Uh, and, and, and not even on any physical evidence just because of letters and, and the love that dare not speak his name. Time and place. That Rebecca was seen as a, um, as a, a, a fascinating gothic novel about a, a difficult woman and, uh, and this you know, gorgeous man, Maxim, who's released from his demon at the end after he murders her. Time and place. Um, time and place for this. Well... Cast your mind back. You, and, and, you know, my friends and colleagues and family and I have spent a long time talking about this because the, um, the genesis and the arrival of the Royal Commission into uh, clerical, uh, into institutional responses to child sexual abuse was a long time coming in this country. And you only have to go back five years and it was a different attitude. Ten years and it was a different... Twenty years and we weren't believed. Children weren't believed back then. I remember that. I remember going to a Catholic school and being, a, you know, you were born into sin as a Catholic child. You were sort of a, a child in sin. I just remember just not being believed by various things. Not, not um, abuse. I was lucky enough not to have to deal with that. But, but about anything, if your teacher would turn around and say, did you, no, you know, little liar. That was 
That was it. Our uh, the, teachers the, were nuns. That's why. Well, that's right. The, the, the fact that you could desire uh, and be attracted to um, a young girl, not such an outrageous thought. In not, 1955, not are you thought. sure? Yeah, no, it was, it was controversial, but it was also immediately celebrated. It's illegal. Mm, yeah, you bet. Then, then and now, but there was something about the idea that he was presenting in this book that Humbert Humbert, our unreliable narrator, is trying to argue here. Something about Europe versus America. It was presented mm -hmm. by some um, literary critics as uh, the, is it, is it the old world debauching the new world? Or is it the new world debauching the old? A Lolita is presented as almost like a cipher for the vulgarity of, of American popular culture, uh, of what America is, its consumerism, its superficiality, its mm. poor education. Humbert Humbert is a man of great education, great taste, great finesse, but he's an abuser. And so this extraordinarily fine line of paradox is walked the whole way through the book, and that is a remarkable feat and a remarkable accomplishment. And Lolita has no voice. This book is, I mean, it starts with a fictional forward saying that a, a, an editor of psychology books has found this manuscript that was written in prison by this person who died before they could face trial. And this book is that fictional, or is that uh, memoir that he's just happened to come across. And so it's a, you know, a book within a book and it's, you're only given, because it's a first-person account written in jail, you've only got that person's perspective and their memories. And so Lolita has no voice. So if you think you're talking about it being a bit metaphorical, um, Lolita may not be a 12-year-old girl. makes me feel a lot better if she isn't. But, um, you know, it may, be, it may be a metaphor. I mean, who knows? He's such a liar. Isn't he a stinking liar? Um, and he's charismatic. As, oh, mm -hmm. I have feelings about this. This is a book that gives me physical feelings and I loved rereading it so much and it creeped me out. It's true. The, 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 the feelings are, are very strong. I mean, there are moments in this book that are enormously painful, you know, where mm. – uh, and you feel so deeply for the character of Lolita. I remember, you know, mm. just being in tears at the end of one particular chapter and it's a, a key chapter at the beginning. But also – time and place, this book has changed during the times in my life where I've read it. And if I went back and, and read it, the, I can't remember the last time I read it, possibly about maybe about eight or ten years ago, but if I read it now, I, I might be hard-pressed to get through it myself because the world around me has changed. Mm -hmm. life, life has changed. Uh, what you, remember, when was, when was it that Jermaine Greer wrote her book in celebration of young boys? Could Jermaine Greer get that book published now? Probably not. Would she be shunned as an absolute perv if she did? Probably. But back then, back then it was still probably, it was like, you know, oh, Jesus, Jermaine, what are you up to now? But there was still um, an element of, you know, no, 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 I see what she means. You know, I mean, when you look back through, through um, Renaissance painting and the attraction of the cherub and, and the young male form, and yeah, I get that. And it's an aesthetic um, sort of, you know, psychological understanding. Yeah, yeah, time moves on. And now it would be no. Jermaine, just no. Put the word processor down. Put, I was going to say pen, put the but the typewriter down. And 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 as I said, um, so what do we make of that? What do we make of the fact that if um, Nabokov came to a publisher today with this manuscript, the publisher would say, "Are you kidding me?" And would not publish it, and the world wouldn't have 
one of the greatest pieces of literature. What do we think of that? It, it has my favourite sentence ever written where Humbert is reflecting on his mother's death. It's called, it's called The Greatest Parenthetical Description Ever. And so there's this sentence where he's like, oh, yeah, my mum, she died. Open brackets, picnic, comma, lightning, close brackets, full stop. Two words and in, a bit in, of punctuation. In parentheses. In parentheses, it's a BTW. It's like a, oh, and a here. But it's two words and a comma. And what does that open up for our minds? And it's not his first language. Like, I want to hit myself on the head with this. And why do I love it, hate it, love it, hate it, love it, hate it? But you picked it and I was so grateful because I was like, yes, an excuse I wouldn't, to reread this I pervy book. I wouldn't waste any energy um, hating it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an exercise in... Um, in writing and also analysis of of unspoken desire and also a craving for connection by a number of characters in that book not yes. not just humbert humbert that is no. eternal and that is mm. universal and it takes you right up against the um the most complicated and stickiest part of your desire and we all have them no one in this room has to reveal them they're all just sitting in there quietly and they'll forever be safe isn't that good? Don't harm anyone. Excellent. But they can stay there. And that's what it takes you up against. And that is an author's job. Mm. Um, so how would you recommend this book to someone who's unsure about reading it? Maybe some of our friends here tonight who are maybe swayed and maybe tempted to try it for the first time. I'd say that the characters in it are fantastic. Mm. Um, he's brilliant at characterisation. It's funny. Shockingly enough, um, it's funny. It's uh, enormously painful. And if you like your books to have peaks and troughs and highs and lows, then this is your book. And it takes you into a, a conversation that's been going since the 1950s about a really important piece of art. And maybe I could just shame you into it by saying, you're not a reader till you've read Lolita. Boom. She would drop the microphone, but they are expensive. Oh, I what want, are you going to do to us? I just wanted to read to you um, the greatest closing lines and these are the closing lines. If it has the greatest opening, Lolita. Mm. Three trips down my palate to tap at tea on the back of my teeth. Um, it has probably the greatest closing line and it um, takes me to the point that I was making about um, immortality and what actually is immortal and what actually is enduring. Mm. And Nabokov is um, the only writer I've ever read who actually understands that. Thus, neither of us is alive when the reader opens this book. But while the blood still throbs through my writing hand, you are still as much part of blessed matter as I am. And I can still talk to you from here to Alaska. Be true to your dick. That's her husband. Her name is Dick. Do, I know. Do not let other fellows touch you. Do not talk to strangers. I hope you will love your baby. I hope it will be a boy. That husband of yours, I hope, will always treat you well because otherwise my spectre shall come at him like black smoke, like a demented giant, and pull him apart nerve by nerve. And do not pity CQ. One had to choose between him and Humbert Humbert, and one wanted Humbert Humbert to exist at least a couple of months longer so as to have him make you live in the minds of later generations. 
I'm thinking of aurochs and angels, the secret of durable pigments, prophetic sonnets, the refuge of art. And this is the only immortality you and I may share, my Lolita. Starts with her name, finishes with her name, speaks about durable pigments, pigments, prophetic sonnets, and the refuge of art being the only, the only immortality. And I completely agree with him. What I want to know is what books didn't make the top five? Oh, there's a whole library of books back home that didn't make the top five. Mm. Uh, crikey. The Line of Beauty, as I mentioned, mm. didn't make the top five. Um, um, another um, book by Cullum Torbeen didn't make the top five, but it's... Um, goes with me wherever I go and it's small enough to do that. It's a little piece um, that I think I think was actually originally, either was originally written as a first-person performance or became one, and that's called The Testament of Mary. Mm. And that's, if you read that, that isn't that incredible. My God, there are scenes out of that that are just some of the, the greatest writing ever, just amazing. Um, the Lazarus, the Lazarus segment is just spine-chilling. Um, and that is uh, Mary's. Testament. And Mary, her son's been crucified, is sitting in a home in um, Jerusalem, angry, bitter, abandoned, manipulated by all the political forces that were um, rotating around Jesus. And she tells her tale. And it's fantastic. Again, mothers, women, all the time. Do you listen to e-audiobooks and do you crochet? It's a double question. I, I used to crochet. My grandma taught me to crochet, but I haven't done it in a very long time. And I still have – she died, of course, many, many years ago. And I still have one tiny little piece of crochet that she did, which sits on my desk, which is a beautiful little um, drink coaster that I always use. So I have that of her with me. Um, I only listen to audiobooks now because I have um, a little one. And he loves audiobooks. Uh -huh. So we play a lot of those and um, we're doing the Harry Potter books um, in audiobooks, which I'm a bit resentful about because I was really hoping to read them to him. Mm. Um, and then I found out that his dad started to download the Narnia books the other day and I said, no, stop. No. <laughs> Narnia is mine. I, I will read him Narnia. Do not steal those from me. And so uh, that had to be deleted off the phone much to everyone's protest, but um, we've read uh, three of the Narnia Chronicles so far and um, A Boy and His Horse has been ordered for me up at um, Readings. Is that what it's called? I think it's called A Boy and His Horse, isn't it? Number four. Horse and His Boy, thank you. And um, that'll be next. Perfect. Please join me in thanking Virginia. Thank you, Natalie. My pleasure. You can read this episode's show notes, including a full list of all of the books that Virginia discussed on our Goodreads page. You can find that at our website, www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au and look for the Read page. I would also love to hear about your Desert Island books. Tweet at Library with the hashtag Desert Island Books and let me know the books you simply cannot live without. You can download this and previous episodes of Desert Island Books in your favourite podcasting app at SoundCloud or iTunes. Simply search for Melbourne Library Service. Happy reading! Mm -hmm.